Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at SupChina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week, we present a best of from our China Stories podcast. If you aren't already subscribing to China Stories, I can't recommend it more highly. Every Tuesday and Friday, we publish audio versions of some of the best writing from the major China-focused English language news sources around, read for you by a wonderful team of volunteer readers, all of whom speak Chinese and therefore do not butcher the pronunciation of Chinese words as they read. Our publishing partners are Sixth Tone, an editor at which Kevin Schoenmakers was the one who first approached me with the idea for this. Taishin Global, we've got The Wire China, Protocol China, The World of Chinese, and Week in China. We also featured some of the best pieces from the sadly now defunct LA Review of Books, their China channel. Our readers include Elise Ribbons, our own Anthony Tao, Sarah Kutulakos, Sylvia Franca, Cliff Larson, John Darwin Van Fleet, Heather Mowbray, and myself, with occasional contributions by SubChina staffers, uh, by the authors themselves, like Paul French and Jay Carter, and by special guest readers like NPR's correspondent Emily Fung. I couldn't possibly do all of this without the amazing work by my interns, past and present, Caroline Agston, Ollie Diekman, and Ivan Hansa. Since we launched in January 2021, we've already published close to 400 audio stories, and China Stories quickly became one of the most successful shows in the Seneca network. There will be loads in store for the coming years, so don't miss anything and subscribe now. If you're interested in becoming a reader for China Stories, or if you're an English-language outlet interested in having your China-related stories read on our podcast, please get in touch. We'd love to talk to you. And with that... Please enjoy this selection of China Stories. Peter Hessler's Last Class Written by He Yujia Published in Sixth Tone Read for you by Elise Ribbons A version of this article was originally published by The Core Story. It has been translated and edited for length and clarity, and is republished on Sixth Tone with permission. In late August 2020, 
Peter Hessler was away interviewing in Wuhan when, back in Chengdu, his twin daughters Natasha and Ariel found a one-month-old black-and-white cat wandering in the grass along a nearby river. They took it home and called it Ulysses, imagining that this kitten must have traveled around the world like the ancient Greek hero. By then, Peter had spent about a year in China, returning to the country where years earlier he had first taught as part of the Peace Corps program and later worked as a journalist. The three books he wrote about his time there established him as an author, including in China, where readers appreciated his foreign but fair observations of their quickly changing country. This May, however, what was supposed to be a five-year stay for Peter and his family was unexpectedly cut short. For reasons left unexplained, Sichuan University, the school in southwestern China where Peter was teaching, said it would not renew his yearly contract. The news came as a shock to those who, amid the increasingly acrimonious U.S.-China relationship, did not want to see the one American most celebrated for connecting with China to be forced out. And so that was how, nearly a year after he joined the family, Ulysses actually went on his first trip around the world. On July 4, he flew to Colorado, USA. Awaiting him were sprawling highland pastures and a comfortable-looking house with plenty of large windows. But not everything boded well for the cat's new life abroad. One of his new home's long-term occupants is a domineering Egyptian leopard cat named Morsi. The Hesslers adopted him during the five years they spent in Egypt, and is nearly ten years older than Ulysses. Peter wrote an article about him, Morsi the Cat, which was published in The New Yorker on May 7, 2018. During the final lecture for his course, Introduction to Journalism and Nonfiction, at Sichuan University on July 1, this was the article he chose to discuss with his students. They adopted Morsi because their two daughters had both been bitten by rats while at home. Soon, Morsi impressed the family with his violent exploits, dutifully biting the heads off two vermin after being introduced. From that moment onwards, their pesky rodent problem was a thing of the past. Unfortunately, however, Morsi was equally vicious towards both rats and humans. He scratched Natasha and Ariel, toddlers at the time, so badly that they bled, as well as Peter's wife, Leslie Chung, who had to get vaccinated as a result. After the family left Egypt and returned to Colorado, Morsi continued to leave headless rat corpses in his wake. Peter asked his students, What do you think will happen when the two cats meet? He didn't wait for their response before answering his own question. Morsi will surely kill Ulysses. Anyway, the girls found Ulysses when I wasn't there, so it's not my problem. This is one of Peter's typical dry jokes, which he delivers with a serious expression on his face. Those who aren't familiar with his humor often do not get it at first. I, however, know his routine all too well. Once, he met up with a friend, who asked if Ulysses was okay. Peter replied, deadpan, That cat had cancer. We had no choice but to drown him. His two daughters, who were standing by his side, cleverly played along, pouting sadly. At that moment, Ulysses was probably having a grand old time leaping about on their terrace at home. This kind of dark humor is present all throughout Peter's work, and also often drew laughs from his students during his two-and-a-half-hour-or-so lectures. He said that the conditions of the apartment he lived in Egypt were very poor, and that the water and electricity would be cut off from time to time. He showed the students a dimly lit photograph, in which we could only barely make out a table, a saucer, and a water glass. At the table were Peter's twin daughters, wearing flashlight helmets like coal miners. Peter said, We were having dinner. He then pointed to a dark spot in the distance. Leslie is sitting here. Can't you see her? She is very beautiful. 
In contrast, their residence in Chengdu for the past two years can best be described as a luxury house. It is located in the heart of the city, only two subway stops from the busiest commercial street in a heavily protected residential community. Visitors must register in detail and call the residents to confirm their invitation before being allowed to enter. Their spacious high-rise apartment has three bedrooms and two living rooms. On clear evenings, they would sit on their terrace, enjoy the cool breeze, and admire the twinkling lights along the river. The four would toast, Peter drinking beer, Leslie red wine, and his daughter's milk. On March 23, 2020, his article, Life on Lockdown in China, was published in The New Yorker. Although he did not write the specific location of his residence, he described the surroundings and facilities of the community in detail, and even offered his house number, 1901. Someone found me on social media and told me, I know where he lives now. I relayed it to Peter and asked, Aren't you afraid of crazy fans coming to your door? People already stop me in the street to say hello when I go running. I don't care, he replied. He and Leslie, who is also a nonfiction author, both admire the enthusiasm of Chinese readers. They say that in the United States there wouldn't be nearly as many people asking them for autographs or talking about their work in detail. Because they want to do in-depth reports in China over a long period, the two have tried their best to keep a low profile. They don't accept interviews often, and try not to participate in large-scale events. Therefore, they always take readers' requests for private autographs very seriously. When readers ask Peter to write a long paragraph along with his signature, he would ask me to take a screenshot of the message and enlarge it as he copied each character stroke by stroke, his childish Chinese handwriting contrasting rather cutely with his serious words. One reader left a note saying, The content and the form of the message is up to you. He earnestly wrote, 2XXX. The content and the form of the message is up to you. Peter Hessler A Family of Writers The flyleaf of the English version of Country Driving, A Chinese Road Trip, bears a typically low-key but sincere expression for Peter's affection, simply reading, For Leslie. His love for his wife and daughters is similar to his black humor, understated and succinct, but touching to those who understand it. Leslie is also continually present in Morsi the Cat, the subject of Peter's final lecture. The couple come from different backgrounds, but share a similar kind of restlessness. They planned for their life together and hoped to go somewhere with a long history and rich language. Though they had little interest in the formalities of marriage, they went to the county court and registered their union the day before boarding the plane to make things easier in Egypt. Just before the ceremony, Leslie rushed upstairs and paid her last speeding fine. Reading between the lines, I sensed a kind of admiration on Peter's part. During the past two years in Chengdu, Peter kept teaching and writing and would often go to other cities for interviews. Leslie, who has mainly been working on her book about Egypt, takes care of the twins who attend a public elementary school. Every time I see Leslie, I always think she resembles Mulan as I imagined her when I was a kid. Long hair down to her shoulders, a soft, oval-shaped face, and a determined glint in what Chinese people call phoenix eyes, with corners that curve upward. When we'd chat after dinner, she'd smile like the spring breeze in Chengdu, right before turning around and saying in a firm tone to her two girls, It's time to go to bed. Say good night. If they had school the next day, the children would go to bed at eight o'clock in the evening without fault. When eating, Leslie asks the girls to swallow their food before talking, and not to stand up when reaching for food. If I was the one who made the meal, the children would come up to me afterward looking me in the eye and say in enunciated Chinese, Thank you, Auntie Yujia. It is so delicious.
Serena, an English major at Sichuan University, told me that once she stayed behind to ask Peter a question. After answering, his tone suddenly turned uncharacteristically emotional. No matter how many articles you write, how much you have achieved, in the end, what counts is your wife, your daughters, your family. I've never heard him deliver such a cheesy line in person before, but I remember him passing on important interviews in other cities because he didn't want to be away too long from his family. If the editor is unhappy about it, that's just too bad. I can't go into quarantine. It'd be too hard on Leslie. I have to get back and send my two children to school, he said. In public, Natasha and Ariel's long hair is always arranged into two neat braids. I once asked them, Mommy spent a lot of time doing your hair, didn't she? They stared at me. What are you talking about? Mom doesn't know how to braid. Dad's the one who does our hair. The two girls, now eleven years old, no doubt know how extraordinary their parents are. They once made a document about their parents, in which they wrote, What they've done, everything. What they haven't done, nothing. They've read everything their parents have written, and they each have their own favorite The New Yorker writers and cartoonists. No matter where they are, these kids are seemingly always completely lost in a book. When I first met them, the then nine-year-olds talked to me about Catch-22. Recently, they were systematically working their way through all the English translations of Haruki Murakami's novels. Sometimes, when I'd come for dinner, they'd ask me to join them in a recital of the ancient poems they'd studied at school. Once, they pulled me into their room and asked me to play with them. I wasn't sure how to entertain such small children, but they just said to me in Mandarin, easily twice as native-sounding as Peter's, Yujia, pick a book from the shelf and we'll all read it together. When I took down an English version of the 18th century novel, Dream of the Red Chamber from the Shelf, they jumped up and cheered, This book is so good! Another time, after Peter and a group of guests had finished discussing writing, he began to brag, They're incredible. They're not even ten yet, and they've already read War and Peace. They're able to write essays in Chinese very well. If they really want to, they could be very good writers when they grow up. In front of his daughters, however, he hid his pride and joked, If you grow up to be waiters... That's already pretty good, right? Later, he told us, Neither Leslie nor I have insurance. If one of us dies, the other can write a book about it and make money. If we both die at the same time, the kids can write the book. It's no problem. Teaching in Sichuan Regarding their departure from Chengdu, Peter feels most sorry for Leslie, saying, So much has happened in the last two years. He has collected enough information to write a whole new book. But Leslie, who has just finished writing her book about Egypt, had planned to spend the remaining three years exploring Chengdu and China as a whole, searching for new material as well as writing follow-ups to previous works. Now she has no choice but to put these plans off. She has sacrificed so much, Peter said. But there are sudden changes that plans can't account for, and all they can do is focus on the little things they can control. Upon learning that they could not renew their visas and must move back to the United States for a while, the couple stayed calm and carefully went about organizing their affairs. While Peter wasn't teaching, Leslie took the opportunity and went to Dongguan to reconnect with a few of the migrant girls she befriended when writing Factory Girls. She discovered one of them has done exceedingly well for herself, now owning both a Porsche and a Mercedes. Meanwhile, Peter calmly gave his final lecture from 6.30 to 9 in the evening. His course was an elective attended by a range of undergraduate students, from freshmen to seniors. During the last class, some students brought copies of his books and didn't avert their attention from him for even a second. Others had taken this course before, but came specially to catch his final appearance. 
There were also students who busied themselves doing the homework for other subjects, as well as one student who spent the entire class on his computer, playing online mahjong at first, and then card games. Peter loved his teaching job. His work in Chengdu was a continuation of the joyful experiences he had as a teacher in Fuling, which he had recounted in his first book, Rivertown, Two Years on the Yangtze. He only spoke of his students in admiring tones. Serena, the English major I mentioned before, originally dreamed of being a novelist. She first audited Peter's class last year before applying to take it as an elective. The class inspired her to study a postgraduate course at Fudan University's Department of International Journalism. He encouraged me to pursue writing as a profession, which really meant a lot to me, Serena said. She flipped through her old homework and found one of Peter's notes. You should think about finding a way to use your writing and observational skills professionally in the future. It is, of course, harder to figure out in China, but you have both gifts and determination. Later, Peter wrote to her in an email, Tenacity matters. Patience is important. And remember that the work always matters. That a lot of it is boring or unglamorous, but it has to be done. And somehow, after many hours and many days, it turns into something of value. Serena came to attend Peter's last lecture, though she'd already finished his class the term before. What he's doing now is what I'd like to be doing in the future, she said. On Writing In his two years in Chengdu, Peter published seven articles on Chinese affairs in The New Yorker, which Chinese people then translated of their own accord and published online. Peter asked me to collect the best of these translations and carefully archive them. On his computer, files such as these, spanning multiple decades, are assorted by year, location, and type into countless folders and can be retrieved in the blink of an eye. His articles inevitably cause heated debate in China and abroad, and he has admirers and detractors on both sides of the political spectrum. On the internet, criticism always sounds louder than praise, and one of the most common cynical remarks made about him is, what's Hessler's ulterior motive when writing things like this? When I brought up such comments, he smiled faintly. What's my motive? Earning writing fees. I often feel that he is a simple person, although he has encountered all sorts of people. He just strives to document what he sees and hears. As for the reader's interpretations, that's their business. As Leslie said, he's always written what he wanted to write, never censoring himself for fear of saying something taboo. Meanwhile, perhaps because it is so far from both China and the United States, Peter's work on Egypt rarely stirs up controversy. In his final class on Morsi the Cat, Peter asked his students if they'd noticed a character who appeared in virtually every article he wrote about Egypt. The students all smiled knowingly, before exclaiming, Saeed! Yes, Saeed the garbage collector. So, the New Yorker's fact-checker had to go looking for Saeed again. He probably had already mentioned the New Yorker's fact-checking system in one of his previous lessons. I also have ample experience in this matter. For many of his articles, I helped out by making initial contact with potential interview subjects. As a result, in the few days leading up to the publication of each article, I'm inevitably contacted by fact-checkers. Every scene described must be supported by a picture or video, while each statistic must be supported by more than two credible sources. I'm asked questions like, Is it really a lot, or is it only some? Many times, I end up muttering curse words to myself as I reply to such emails, but I at least have complete faith in the accuracy of his work. He smiled warmly as he spoke to his students about Saeed the Egyptian garbage collector. Peter's not the kind of vampire-like writer who sucks the life out of his interviewees before setting them on their way. 
He said he had spoken to Said on the phone not long ago, who told all was well and he hadn't been ill. Peter seemingly does his best to keep in touch with everyone he interviews. In the past two years, he has gone back to Fuling several times to see his old students from the 1990s. Later, he also went to Shanghai, Hangzhou, Yiwu, Zhang Jiakou, and elsewhere, each time to visit old friends, get new stories from them, and find new subjects to interview. Once, using a phone number he gave me, I helped him reconnect with an old friend in Lishui, a small city in eastern China's Zhejiang province, whom he hadn't seen in decades. As soon as this friend heard his name, they let out a hearty laugh and said, Of course I remember him. He was so good to us back then. He's welcome to come back and hang out with us. In some ways, Peter's first stint in China seems to be a golden age of the past, when foreigners weren't viewed with mild suspicion by default. During these past two years, I sometimes helped him contact interviewees, to whom I'd introduce him, using his Chinese name as Ho Wei, the writer and university professor. A lot of people only realized that he was a foreigner upon meeting him. They would agree to go through with the interview as a courtesy, but would later message me on WeChat, He's a foreigner? I would feign ignorance, but I had confidence in his ability to win them over. He knows how to adapt to his interviewees and get them to open up. There are also some people who outright refused the moment they heard the word interview, claiming that they barely had enough time to earn a living. Unable to convince them on my own, I once asked Peter, can't you first come up with an excuse to meet them, like wanting to talk about a business deal? Dead serious, he replied. No, you have to be completely honest about your intentions from the beginning. I can't think of many other occasions when he's told me what to do so seriously. I later realized that he was probably afraid of the New Yorker's fact-checkers. Life is a cycle. After he'd finished talking about Said, Peter asked the students another question. Had they noticed that many things in the article came in pairs? There are many pairs in Morsi the Cat, his twin daughters, the twin brothers in the building, the pharaoh and the queen, upper and lower Egypt. The ancient Egyptians believed that many things came in twos. They even had two separate words for time, Nehe and Jit. Nehe pertains to cyclical time, sunrises and sunsets, seasonal turnovers, and the annual rise and fall of the Nile. Jet, on the other hand, is static. When the pharaohs pass away, they enter Jet, the eternal realm of gods, temples, and pyramids. In Jet, something has been completed, but it doesn't go away. It continues to exist forever in the present. Peter recalled that after the article was published, a Jewish physicist emailed him saying that his family had been expelled from Egypt years earlier, and that, judging from the descriptions in the article, they had probably lived in the same apartment building. Peter asked him to send photos and to describe everything in detail. It turns out that the physicist's family had lived in the exact same apartment. And, not only that, he also had twin daughters whose names were very similar to Natasha and Ariel. Amid a smatter of exclamations from surprised students, Peter concluded, Time can be long, and it can also be very short. Time can help you memorize everything. Time can reveal stories and details you weren't aware of. Stories are never truly complete. Life is a cycle. I was reminded of meeting him for the first time in Chengdu in the late summer of 2019. He was wearing his trademark sea-green plaid shirt, with a pen poking out of the chest pocket and a black electronic watch on his wrist. Now, during his last class at Sichuan University, he was still wearing the same shirt. Did he have multiple of the same shirt? I never thought to ask, nor did I really care. With a pen in his left chest pocket and a black electronic watch on his wrist, I imagine that, the next time I see him, he will be dressed exactly the same. 
To me, his dress code seems to exist in jet, sealed in the eternal realm. One time, I met with Peter in Fuling. I managed to find the apartment building where he used to live. The high-end building that was once specially offered to foreign teachers is now deserted, and all that's left are old flower pots that nobody thought to move. The Fuling Normal College mentioned in the book has since been renamed as Yangtze Normal College and boasts a new campus. However, through the gaps in the buildings, I looked out at the turquoise waters of the Wu River and was surprised to hear the whistle of the steamboat described in the book. For a second, I felt like I'd gone back in time. Cities are constantly changing, but the feelings left by words last forever. Through his writing, Peter documented places that, while figments of the past, will forever exert an influence on the present. Whether it's Fuling in the 1990s, Beijing before and after the Olympics, Chengdu in the past two years, or China as a whole, where momentous things are happening and will continue to happen in the future. The time is right now. Many things are taking place as we speak. Please record them all. After his explanation of the Egyptian theory of time, this piece of wisdom was Peter's parting gift. Leslie and Peter have told me on multiple occasions in the past that recording everything is a skill that all nonfiction writers must possess. But Peter's remark at the end of his final class was more like a reflection on the responsibility that we all bear, as well as an expression of his own personal wish. Having shared this wish, Peter quietly said, That's all. Good luck to all of you. Then, an abrupt announcement in Chinese. Class dismissed. Just like that, his final lecture at Sichuan University had officially come to an end. The students hesitated a second before breaking into lukewarm applause. This Week in China's History November 12, 1941 Lo Jialing, a.k.a. Liza Hardoon, and the Height of Global Shanghai Written by James Carter Published in SubChina Read for you by John D. Van Fleet 20,000 people showed up to pay their respects four times the number of official mourners who had been invited. Cars lined Bubbling Well Road for blocks, waiting to enter the Hardoon Gardens, carrying a cross-section of Shanghai society. Armed security guards and police kept order. Once inside, loudspeakers directed people to their assigned places. A necessity in a 30-acre estate fitted, somehow, into the sprawl of the city. Eventually, led by dozens of Buddhist monks and accompanied by three bands, the remains of Lo Jialing, a.k.a. Liza Hardoon, were entombed along the Hebrew-inscribed marker of her husband. Shanghai has been called lots of names. In just the years since Britain claimed it as a treaty port in 1842, it's been described as Paris of the East and various blank of the Orient, Pearl, Queen, Whore. Japanese novelist Shofu Muramatsu wrote about it as the Demon City, though in Chinese it's translated as Magic City. Some suggest this one should stick. But one of the most appropriate I have found is the title of Jeffrey Wasserstrom's 2009 book, Global Shanghai doesn't have the same ring as Pearl of the Orient, I suppose, but an appellation that could not be more appropriate. 
One of the frustrations and joys of writing about Shanghai is trying to identify it. It's Chinese, but unlike any other Chinese city, with strands of Japan, Britain, America, and a dozen other places woven into its fabric. For this week in China's history, we look back to a moment that was quintessentially Shanghai, and singularly global: the funeral of Luo Jialing, half Chinese, half French, raised a Buddhist, married in a Jewish wedding, and the wealthiest woman in Asia. Her funeral on November twelfth, nineteen forty-one. One of the reasons I focused on that day in Champions Day was a rare intersection of worlds in Shanghai, one worth describing and understanding. I've drawn on my own research for that book, which included important sources like Maisie Meyer's edited collection, Shanghai's Baghdadi Jews, a collection of biographical reflections, and From the Rivers of Babylon to the Huangpu. Among other published sources in English, Luo Jialing exemplified global Shanghai, as few others. She was born in Shanghai in 1864, in the midst of the Taiping War that not only tore China apart and threatened to topple its ruling Qing dynasty, but in many ways made Shanghai what it would become, unable to rely on protection from the Qing government. Foreigners in Shanghai took upon themselves many of the functions of government and created a colony in all but name. As Shanghai became a refuge, and then grew prosperous, it attracted people from across China and around the world. Both Lo's Chinese mother and French father were part of the wave of immigrants who flowed into Shanghai after the Opium War. Lo's mother. Shenyi arrived from Fujian and worked as a tailor and seamstress in Shanghai's French concession. Among her customers was a Frenchman named Isaac Ruse. We don't know exactly when the couple met, but their daughter, named Luo Jialing in Chinese, and Liza Ruse in French, was born in 1864. Her father was rarely part of her life. And her mother died when she was only six, leaving her with her mother's family in the district of Pudong. She spoke Shanghainese as her native language, learning English only after her marriage, and Mandarin not until she was in her fifties. Through her teens, Luo Jialing's biography matched hundreds, maybe many more, of children born in Shanghai at the time. There was nothing in her early years. That suggested her eventual funeral would attract tens of thousands of people, and be reported in newspapers across the world. Her move toward celebrity began when she met Silas Aaron Hardoon in one of the homes where she worked during the 1870s and 1880s. The Hardoons are one of the prominent families. The even more famous Sassoons are another, that highlight the Jewish thread in Shanghai's fabric. That was neither Chinese nor fully accepted among many Shanghai foreigners. The Hardoon, then spelled Hadoon, family arrived from Baghdad via Bombay during the boom of the 1850s. 
Silas Aaron Hardoon was six years old. When he met Lowe, Hardoon was working as a manager for David Sassoon's company and buying real estate both for Sassoon and, it seems, for himself. Relationships between Chinese women and non-Chinese men were not uncommon. They married in 1886, in both Jewish and Chinese ceremonies. Hardoon took an interest in Lowe's Buddhism, and those connections brought him into contact with Chinese business networks that were inaccessible to many foreigners. By the 1890s, Hardoon was one of the wealthiest men in Shanghai, with an office on the Bund and the beginnings of an elaborate estate. Part of the Hardoon's fortune, immense even by Shanghai standards, as much as 800 million in today's dollars when he died, derived from the, then legal, opium trade. The Hardoons defied many of their peers' prejudices. Some of their supported projects were Jewish, including financing the construction of the Beit Aharon Synagogue, which was Shanghai's largest until it was demolished in the 1980s. Others were Buddhist, a complete edition of the Buddhist scriptures, as well as renovations to the Jing'an Temple on Bubbling Well Road. Still others were secular, like paving Nanking Road, supposedly in exchange for a seat on the Shanghai Municipal Council, to which Hardun was elected in 1900, the payment being necessary to justify a Jewish member on the settlement's governing body. The Hardoon household was a rare melding of cultures, even by Shanghai's cosmopolitan standards. Silas Hardoon observed Jewish holidays and attended synagogue regularly, while the European Hardoon children celebrated Christian as well as Chinese holidays. The Hardoon Gardens, where their funerals would be held decades later, were named Ai Li in honor of Liza, Ai meaning love, and Lee, the first character of Liza's given name. They were a fantastic landscape, designed by a Buddhist monk, with complementary Jewish and Buddhist elements inside the home. Pagodas and a temple, an artificial stream, Chinese theater, pavilions, and scenic spots for meditation filled the garden's nearly 30 acres. The rare mingling of cultures challenged attempts to categorize the Hardoons. Did Liza Hardoon become Jewish? Did Silas Hardoon embrace Buddhism? These questions mattered, not only because the couple were cultural curiosities in Shanghai's multicultural yet segregated society, but because great fortunes depended on the answers. When Silas Hardoon died in 1931, he left his entire fortune to Liza, and the will was immediately challenged on religious and national grounds. But when the court found in favor of Liza Hardoon, she instantly became one of the wealthiest women in the world and one of the richest people in Shanghai, regardless of gender. Liza lived for a decade after Silas passed in failing health and increasing reclusiveness. But she remained an institution in Shanghai, so when it came time for her funeral, delayed more than a month by legal and religious wrangling, it was an event. 
As I described it in Champions Day, quote, Even for Shanghai, this was a spectacle. Three bands played funeral music as part of the procession. Thirty-two pallbearers carried the ornate casket, draped with red silk, that was so heavy that despite the large number of bearers, they had to stop frequently for rest. Spectators lined the entire length of the procession. Sixty photographers, including newsreels, recorded the event. Leading the procession beneath a course of ceremonial gates, decorated with lanterns, across the gardens were the Hardoon's numerous adopted children, each accompanied by a servant guarded by armed police. When the procession finally reached the grave, mourners lowered the casket by ropes, while an orange-robed priest concluded the service by making sure the body was oriented on a north-south axis. Carved granite slabs, quarried in Suzhou, were placed atop the grave alongside offerings of gold and silver as the ceremony concluded. End quote. One of the key tensions in Champions Day is that the world of Shanghai was about to tumble over a cliff. The Japanese occupied the city center just three weeks later. The impact was felt even at the Hardun estate. A fire raced through the gardens in 1943, and eventually the graves of Liza and Silas were relocated to the outskirts of the city. The former Hardun estate was turned into the Sino-Soviet Friendship Palace, which still stands as the Shanghai Exhibition Center. Shanghai today, pandemic notwithstanding, is still an international city, but never was there a better encapsulation of global Shanghai than the funeral of Liza Hardun. Qianlong Emperor the Worst Poet in Chinese History? Published in the World of Chinese. Written by Sun Jiahui. Read to you by Cliff Larson. The longest-lived ruler of the Qing Dynasty wrote 43,000 poems in his lifetime. Most of them bad. If you ask a Chinese person who was the most successful poet in Chinese history, the answer most likely will be one from the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907, the golden age of Chinese poetry. The poet immortal, Li Bai, known for the fantastic themes and playfulness of his works. The poet sage, Du Fu, who wrote realistic poems about this chaotic time in history. Or Bai Juyi, whose low-key, near-vernacular style made his verses understandable even to uneducated people, and whose works are enjoyed by readers in foreign countries like Japan and Korea. But when it comes to being the most prolific poet, the Qianlong Emperor of the Qing Dynasty, 1616, to 1911, has all these Tang luminaries beat. One of the longest-lived monarchs in Chinese history, the Qianlong Emperor had 43,000 poems to his name. By the time he died at the age of 88, 
meaning he allegedly wrote 1.3 poems each day on average. By comparison, the 18th century complete Tang poems, Quan Tang Shi, China's largest collection of Tang poetry, contained 49,000 poems by more than 2,200 poets. Alleged is the key, as it is not clear the emperor penned a single poem attributed to him, and he was definitely more concerned with quantity than quality, to put it mildly. It was not rare for ancient Chinese emperors to write poems. Li Jing, the second ruler of the Southern Tang State during the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, 907 to 960. And his son and successor Li Yu are both recognized as great poets, but unfortunately, hundreds of years on, no one could say the same of the Qianlong Emperor, except for the son of heaven himself. The emperor was very proud of his poetic achievements, once saying in his late years, "At the age of nearly ninety, I have created as many poems." As that of the poets of the whole Tang Dynasty, isn't that a legend in the literary world? Qian Zhongshu, a famous literary scholar and writer of the 20th century, commented on the Qianlong Emperor's poem in his *On the Art of Poetry*. Tan Yi Lü, the Emperor Gaozong of the Qing Qianlong, wrote poems like he was writing essays using many necessary auxiliary words. It makes people sick. From the Emperor's oeuvre, one poem called "On Flying Snow," Fei Xue, is included in primary school textbooks today. It goes like this: one piece, another piece, and. Another piece, two pieces, three pieces, four, five pieces, six pieces, seven pieces, eight, nine pieces, all fly into the flowering reeds and disappear. E pian. 一篇，又一篇，两篇，三篇，四五篇，六篇，七篇，八九篇，飞入芦花都不见。If it weren't for the last line, one wouldn't know this、uh, was meant to be a poem. But this final line may not even have been written by the emperor himself. Some folk tales say it was the official Ji Yun, a well-known writer in the Qing Dynasty, who finished the poem after the emperor wrote the first three lines. Others say it was another official Li Yong. Other readers found this poem very similar to a work by Zheng Banqiao, a painter and calligrapher living in the same time as the Qianlong Emperor. Zheng's poem was called "On Snow." Yong Xue. He wrote one piece, two piece, three, four pieces, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pieces, one thousand pieces, ten thousand pieces, countless pieces, 
all flying into the plum blossom and cannot be seen. 一篇,两篇,三四篇,五六七八九十篇,千篇,万篇,无数篇,飞入梅花总不见。since Zhang and the emperor were contemporaries, it's hard to say who wrote their poem first, but most people who subscribe to the plagiarism theory believe the emperor copied Zhang, as it would have been suicidal to plagiarize an emperor in ancient China. Another of Qianlong Emperor's poems describing cucumber is famous for being unpoetic. It is the best ingredient on the plate in Beijing. I tasted it lately in February. But how can I give it a review? Weighing down the trellis and embellishing the fence, it looks so beautiful. The rural landscape contains true feelings. 菜盘加品最眼睛。二月长心起定品。压价坠里偏有志。田家风景会真情。Besides bad writing and plagiarism, the Qianlong Emperor was also suspected of hiring ghostwriters. According to the unofficial history of the Manchu Qing, Manqing Waishi, a collection of folk tales and anecdotes about the dynasty compiled by Tianjia, a writer living in the late 19th and early 20th century, court official Shen Deqian, ghost wrote a lot of poems for the emperor and thus was favored by him. When Shen died, his executors found he had collected all the poems he wrote for the emperor into an anthology of his own. The emperor was very angry and embarrassed, so he ordered a complete search of Shen's estate and a confiscation of all his property. It's not clear how much of the unofficial history is true, and how much fiction. But the emperor himself admitted he didn't mind using ghostwriters. In the second year of his rule, the Qianlong Emperor published a volume of poetry named The Complete Works in Leshan Hall, Leshan Tang Quanji, and wrote in the preface, From now on, even if I have new works, some might be created by officials. In ancient China, writing poetry was an important marker of being an educated man. The Qianlong Emperor who was also an avid collector of art and calligraphy, seemed to be extra keen to prove himself as not only a capable administrator, but a man of talent and taste. Perhaps his writing ability wasn't any worse than most other emperors in history. He just exposed himself to ridicule by writing a lot and boasting about his poor attempts. The only question is, couldn't the emperor find any ghostwriters who could write better poems? Partners in Profit Published by Week in China Read for you by Sylvia Franca Surely the apple is the noblest of fruits, 
claimed the 19th century American essayist Henry David Thoreau. Can the same be said of its modern namesake, the world's best-known electronics brand, Apple Inc.? Not according to Tech News website The Information, which published an investigation recently into seven Chinese companies in Apple's supply chain suspected of using forced labor. It's not the first time that Apple has been asked to address this issue. It dropped camera module supplier O-Film late last year after similar reports. But the most recent allegations come at a time when its supply chain is under scrutiny on two further fronts. Firstly, in early June, the Nasdaq-listed giant published a list of its top 200 suppliers for the first time in more than two years. And the compilation suggested that, far from broadening its engagement with partners to a fuller range of firms from countries other than China, as Apple said it would start doing in 2019, it has deepened its relationship with companies there. The latest list includes 12 new mainland Chinese entities. This brings the total to 51, if Hong Kong is included, surpassing the number of suppliers headquartered in Taiwan for the first time, numbering 48. Apple's list provides a barometer on global supply chains. As such, it is likely to be in the news again this weekend as the G7 leaders meet in the UK. Earlier this year, officials from the Biden administration said the U.S. president would use the meeting to push for coordinated action on forced labor and increase consumer awareness of those companies that exploit it. Human rights campaigners want measurable commitments, including an agreement to eliminate forced labor from G7 supply chains by 2025. If the information's report is correct, One of the new entrants to Apple's supply chain won't be there for long. That's Shenzhen Dirun, which makes antennas and internal cables. The report alleges it relies on at least 1,000 staff from Xinjiang, with further allegations that six of the seven companies named in the study participate in work programs that are operated by the Chinese government. Activists allege that the schemes are cover for forced labor, particularly involving Uyghurs living in Xinjiang. On a different note, the list also includes Shenzhen-listed LuxShare, which has built up its exposure to Apple by acquiring Taiwanese suppliers. These include buying a 45% stake in casing manufacturer Casetech from Taiwan's Pegatron, a 45% stake in Apple camera module manufacturer Cowell, and taking over a Chinese iPhone assembling plant from another Taiwanese company, Wistron. LuxShare's move up the Apple rankings highlights a second important trend. While the number of Chinese companies on the supplier list is growing, they're not necessarily basing their operations solely in mainland China. In this regard, Apple is meeting its target of shifting 15% to 30% of its production out of China, and Chinese companies are helping it to do it. What's noticeable is how many Chinese companies now have additional plants in India, Thailand, and Vietnam. For example, LuxShare appears on Apple's list in four Chinese provinces, Anhui, Jiangsu, Jiangxi, and Zhejiang. 
It also lists a plant in Vietnam as well, in Baxiang. Another new entrant, Shenzhen-listed Lingyi iTech, is also mentioned in four Chinese provinces, Guangdong, Henan, Jiangsu, and Sichuan, but it has diversified overseas with factories in Brazil, India, and again in Vietnam's Baxiang. Taiwanese suppliers are also leading the charge into Southeast and South Asia. Companies that have gone south since the 2018 Apple supplier list was published include Compal, Thailand and Vietnam, Foxlink, India, Foxconn, India and Vietnam, Quanta, Thailand, and Yajio, Thailand and Vietnam. But the number of Chinese companies on the Apple list will expand by four or five this year, counters Global Times, because the Chinese economy has been less disrupted by the pandemic than India and Vietnam. Jiemian.com agrees, citing China's skilled labor and vast manufacturing ecosystem. It also highlights how Chinese firms are moving up the value chain noting the addition to the top 200 list of GigaDevice, a memory chip designer from Shanghai. Shot Heard Around the World, China's Olympic Return. Written by Sam Davies. Published in the World of Chinese. Read to you by Sarah Kutulakos. In the heat of the California sun, crowds began to gather around Xu Haifeng as he prepared to take his final few shots in the Olympic 50-meter pistol event. After a deep breath, he fired his trusty gun and waited for the judges to count the scores. Just two years before the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles, Xu had been working as a fertilizer salesman in Anhui province. But that summer day, he found himself on top of the podium with a gold medal around his neck, the first PRC athlete to see the country's flag raised and hear its national anthem, March of the Volunteers, played in an Olympic stadium. Xu was the first Olympic champion of the 1984 Games, as well as the first representative from China ever to win gold in what was the PRC's first appearance at the Summer Olympics since 1952. With Xu's shots heard around the world, he wrote himself into Olympic lore and millions of school textbooks. When I got back to China with a gold, I realized how significant it would be. It changed my life ever after, Xu told Reuters in 2008. The Beijing Olympic Games in 2008 are regularly referred to as China's coming out party, where the formerly impoverished and closed communist country announced itself as a powerful nation to the world, but the PRC's Olympic appearance in 1984 was arguably more significant. It ended a hiatus that had begun when the PRC formally withdrew from the International Olympic Committee in 1958 in protest at the continued inclusion of the Republic of China, which controlled Taiwan but claimed authority over all Chinese territory. China's road to readmission began in the 1970s as China's leaders began to court the benefits of greater international recognition. In 1971, the PRC resumed participation in the Asian Games, then made a formal application for recognition from the IOC as the sole sports organization representing the whole of China in 1975. 
The normalization of relations with the U.S. in 1979 paved the way for the PRC to reemerge on the world stage and the political support for the PRC to retake its place in the Olympic movement. Even with growing political recognition, it took the best part of a decade for athletes from the Chinese mainland to finally participate in an Olympic Games. In 1976, the Canadian government barred the Republic of China from competing under the ROC name and flag at the Montreal Games that year, drawing criticism from the U.S. and others. The Taiwanese delegation refused to participate under those conditions. The PRC, which had still not been recognized by the IOC, also didn't attend. Finally, the Nagoya Resolution, passed in 1979 by the IOC, granted the Olympic Committee in Beijing the name Chinese Olympics Committee. Taiwan would continue its participation in the Games under the name Chinese Taipei and would no longer be permitted to use the ROC flag or anthem. Having re-entered the Olympic fold in 1979, the Moscow Games in 1980 seemed a logical setting for the PRC to take the field on the soil of a fellow communist state. But relations with the USSR were fraught since the Sino-Soviet split in 1958, and later the warming of relations between China and the US. The Americans persuaded the PRC to boycott the Games along with over 60 other nations in protest of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. By coincidence, the city that had hosted the first Olympic Games with an athlete representing China ended up hosting China's Olympics reemergence. In 1932, Liu Zhangchun had competed for the Republic of China in the 100 and 200 meters race at the Olympics in LA. In 1952, the fledgling PRC scrambled to get swimmer Wu Chuanyu to the Games in Helsinki. Both Liu and Wu had been the only athletes representing their country at the Games. Neither qualified in their events, and both faced obstacles to do with politics as well as planning in their road to the Olympics. By 1984, however, China was prepared. In defiance of a Soviet-led boycott, the PRC sent 215 competitors to 105 sports to L.A. Though Chinese officials played down their hopes of success prior to the Games, the country finished a remarkable fourth in the medals table with 15 golds. Ignoring the boycott not only improved the PRC's medal opportunities, but also helped ingratiate the country with its American hosts, even earning it praise for saving the Olympics. With China's first gold, she became an instant hero, but also impressive were the feats of Li Ning, nicknamed the Prince of Gymnastics. Li won six medals in total at the 1984 Games, including three golds, wowing the crowds with his feats on the floor, pommel horse, and rings. After retirement, he established an eponymous sportswear brand, which has made him billions. He was named China's Male Athlete of the Century in 2000 and took the star part in the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, running around the national stadium in mid-air suspended by wires before lighting the Olympic cauldron. The slogan for the Chinese team in 1984 was, Break out of Asia and advance in the world. It had taken 32 years, but with one shot and some outstanding gymnastics, the PRC had finally arrived. China's Culture Wars, now playing on Bilibili. Written by Shen Lu. Published in Protocol China. Read for you by Kaiser Guo. At first glance, NASDAQ-listed Bilibili is going gangbusters, 
The Shanghai-based site is set for a $2 billion secondary listing in Hong Kong. It's become one of China's most popular video-sharing platforms, and it's making big moves into other areas like gaming. But it's in trouble back home. Tens of thousands of women are boycotting and sanctioning the service over what they say is out-of-control misogyny. Bilibili is becoming a case study in what can go wrong when a platform moves from the fringes to the mainstream. The backlash started in late January. Once a hub for China's Gen Z and a safe haven for ACG, anime, comic, and games fans, Bilibili made the fateful decision to promote Jobless Reincarnation, an anime series on its site. Female users quickly noted the show objectified women and even featured pedophilic elements. At one point, the main character, a 34-year-old man, molests a 9-year-old girl. The incident brought to a boil long-simmering anger over Bilibili for hosting increasingly misogynistic content and user comments, and doing little to curb it. Bilibili removed the series on February 7th for what it said were technical reasons, but for fed-up female users, it was too late. In early February, online activists, many themselves Bilibili users, organized on other social media sites to punish the company. The activists primarily belonged to a female-dominated Doban forum, with nearly 700,000 members called Goose Group. It started as a place to trade entertainment industry gossip, but it has become more political, with a particular focus on gender. After jobless reincarnation was yanked, the feminists successfully pressured several Bilibili advertisers to end partnerships with the company. The women urged one another to report Bilibili's male CEO, Chen Rui, to the Yangpu District People's Congress in Shanghai, a participatory body of which Chen is a member, for tolerating and even promoting misogynistic content. Activists noted the controversial anime series had been on Chen's watch list. The Chinese women also attempted to short Bilibili stock, although the effort flopped. On February 10th, the company's price share surged more than 10%. Bilibili was never a gender-equal space, but it began as something edgier and more lovable than what it's become. It came online in 2009 as a haven for mostly male, die-hard anime fans, with a heavy reliance on user-generated content. Grace Gu, a PhD student at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, who researches Chinese social media, told Protocol that different subcultures whose voices are normally marginalized on mainstream platforms widely embraced Bilibili. These users and communities contributed greatly to Bilibili's early-on popularity and basically nurtured the opportunity for it to become commercialized, Gu said. Things started to change in 2014 when Chen, now 43, became CEO with ambitions to turn Bilibili into a popular video-sharing platform, a kind of YouTube for China. The little raggedy site, Xiaopozhan, as Bilibili was known among its diehards, realized it needed to go big and get on the government's good side. Bilibili has since diversified its content, hosting lifestyle vlogs, food and fashion videos, documentaries, and movies. It's gotten decidedly more mainstream and, frankly, less cool. The Communist Youth League started a channel on the site in 2017, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs opened a Bilibili account on February 22nd.
It's also gotten more sexist, even as it's gotten more gender-balanced. In 2013, only 25% of Bilibili users were women. Today, it's 43%. Yet according to half a dozen Bilibili users and two Chinese social media researchers Protocol spoke to, Bilibili has become visibly more conservative, sexist, and nationalistic. For one thing, nastily gendered commentary is increasingly rife, in many cases triggered by videos that aim to prevent just such behavior. After one woman posted a video in which she discusses stigmatization of the word feminism, swarms of men attacked her appearance. Often, when female users post slightly feminist content or discuss male celebrities, male users will curse at them in the comment section, which on Bilibili are called bullets, and move quickly across the surface of the video, making them hard to avoid. A Bilibili employee who agreed to speak to Protocol on the condition of anonymity said the company is aware of sexist content on the site. But the Bilibili employee also said the company had generally turned a blind eye to it, wary of offending its predominantly male users. Bilibili is not only letting hateful content stand, it's also allegedly censoring content pitched at women and other minority groups. Ashley Zhang, a content producer at OutChina, a public interest video program promoting LGBTQ-related content, told Protocol that when she worked with editors from Bilibili in the past two years, pitches about feminism or religion would be ruthlessly rejected. Bilibili assigns editors to work with public accounts with big followings. Six of twenty videos she produced six of twenty videos she produced about the lives of queer Chinese people were removed by the site over the past two years. By comparison, the more mainstream Weibo only removed one video. Bili Bili quote boasts of its subculture roots, Zhang told Protocol, but then it censors the heck out of the content that minority users upload. Bili Bili insists it's committed to diversity. In a public response to the anime fiasco issued on February 10th, Bilibili said it would launch a month-long campaign to, quote, resolutely resolve content issues, unquote, and pledged to, quote, handle troubling accounts and content in strict compliance with laws and regulations, unquote. Last year, CEO Chen said on the company's 11th anniversary that the two most important values of the Bilibili community were, first, fairness, and second, inclusiveness. Bilibili didn't respond to a protocol request for comment. Bilibili also has a robust content moderation apparatus, but female users continue to complain that it's hard to get sexist and misogynistic content removed. Beset by angry users, Bilibili is approaching a decision point. The Goose Group versus Bilibili clash highlights a broader gender tension that has been percolating in China. Over the past five years, Beijing has promoted a return to traditional gender norms and labor divisions that threatens to push women further back into the home. But during this same time period, many young women have experienced a gender awakening, particularly after the global hashtag MeToo movement swept into China in 2018 against the government's wishes. Bilibili's relentless pursuit of a larger, more diverse audience has coincided with this shift. It's brought in new voices who don't accept Bilibili's male status quo. In response, men have often responded in ways that highlight exactly why other users don't feel welcome. 
The tension between Billy Billy's minority users and its existing subculture users has risen to a point where it likely will put pressure on the company's business, Simon Law, a PhD candidate in political philosophy at Indiana University Bloomington, who researches social media activism, told Protocol. Even in China, no tech company can afford to wear the label of misogyny. The audience has split, he said. Tech companies inevitably will have to choose which audience they want to secure going forward. I sacrificed 16 years to the mines. Miner-turned-poet Chen Yanxi tells the harrowing story of his years working as a blaster underground. Translated by Nathaniel J. Gan. This story was originally told in Chinese on the Story FM podcast. It has been translated and republished by the World of Chinese with Permission. Narrated by Elise Ribbons. The Gold Mines of Qinling and the Army of 100,000. My name is Chen Yanxi, and I'm from Danfeng County, Shanxi Province. I worked 16 years as a blaster in the mines, and I've been a writer for almost 20 years as well. My life has been like the wind and rain, always in flux. My hometown was extremely poor. A family of three might be allotted only one-sixth of an acre by the government, with poor soil unsuitable for growing crops. I remember, back when I was going to school, seven or eight little corn cakes and a small pail of pickled vegetables was all the food I brought from home for the whole week. When I finished the vegetables, I couldn't even bring myself to wash the pail. When school let out on Fridays, I had to walk 90 li, almost 50 kilometers, to get home. When I came upon a stream, I would dip the pail in the water and drink up the lingering taste of the vegetables. A few sips, and I could keep walking a long way. I graduated from high school in 1987. Out of my class, only eight people got into college, all of them vocational schools. By then, migrants were already flooding into southern China to find work, but few people came from our part. By then... Migrants were already flooding into southern China to find work, but few people from our parts went. This is because around 1979, they started mining the Qinling Mountains for gold, and whole towns went to work in those mines. Our region's topography is fairly flat, aside from the abrupt thrust of the Qinling Range. If it wasn't for the mines, this area would have remained a backwater. The first time I went to the Qinling Mountains was in 1987. My high school teacher had a relative who was a contractor for work crews in the mountains, so he took 20 of us up there to move ore. In those days, there wasn't much organization. Small private mines seldom had equipment for transporting the ore, so it had to be carried down by humans, bit by bit. When we got to the mining area, it was a flurry of activity. There were countless switchbacks and mine openings, and a dark mass of human heads moving among them. Men and women, old and young. There were all kinds of people there. They were all carrying ore, moving step by step in a continuous flow. This is what people back then called the Army of 100,000. The site persisted for over a decade. Carrying Ore When I first started carrying ore, I remember that the mine tunnels were all around 1.8 meters in diameter. Tracks ran through the tunnels and whenever a minecart went by, you had to plaster yourself against the walls. If you didn't, you'd end up getting crushed. 
Even after walking three or four li, two kilometers, we still wouldn't have reached the end of the tunnel. Then we sometimes had to climb fifty or sixty meters up or down ropes in the mine shafts. The whole mountain had been blasted into a labyrinth. It was impossible to get your bearings. I remember one time, all of us were in a mine shaft, climbing up a thick rope. We were scrambling up the rock surface with our feet, like a swarm of locusts. But the workers above us didn't know we were down there, and threw down a sack of ore, smashing and maiming the leg of one of our crew. The mines were a chaotic place in those days. Working there, you needed luck on your side. But the good thing was, we ended up making 27 renminbi a week, which was inconceivable riches for the time. We were all thrilled to be making so much money at such a young age. Many years later, when I returned to work in the mines, it was because of this memory. Fortune Road The mine was a typical one. All kinds of vendors set up camp around the base of the mountain, selling gear, gloves, anything you might need. There were little diners scattered all over the mountain, as well as clinics, in particular orthopedic clinics. Here, so long as there was money to be made, somebody would rise to the task. Day in and day out, year after year, the mines drew in the labor force. I, too, fell into fate's magnetic field. Many years later, my brothers were starting families. Back then, if you wanted to build a house, you had to build it yourself, brick by brick, tile by tile. The whole family got involved. We spent three years on my oldest brother's house, three years on the second oldest, and immediately after that, three years on my own. In the blink of an eye, ten years went by. My wife and I sank ourselves deep into debt to get our house built. Then, in 1999, my child was born. For a while, our family was in dire straits. But thanks to the mines, I didn't need to abandon my wife and newborn child to go work in the city. Thus, I began my career underground. I ended up pushing carts on the mountain. I was referred to the job by a friend. Blasting the tunnels produces a lot of rubble, which the carters have to haul out. The boss was very canny. He put a scale by the mine opening so that when you got to the entrance, he could calculate your pay by weight. The rate was one cent per half kilo, so if you hauled 500 kilograms, then it was 10 renminbi. Back then, in order to make more money, we hauled like our lives depended on it. Each of us could fit 1,000 kilos in one of those little two-wheeled carts. Behind our struggle, there was a feeling of hope. It was as if we could resolve all of our family's troubles by working in the mines. I remember that the road leading to the mines had three forks, and one of the paths had a large boulder in front of it. When the mine workers got there, they would all sit and rest for a bit. Later, somebody chiseled three characters into the boulder, reading Fortune Road. Later on, someone filled in the characters with red paint, so you could see them from a long way off. This became a landmark. I figure they expected to make it big someday, resting all their hopes on this mining road. A blessing and a curse. The first year I hauled ore as a student, I only stayed seven days. This time round, I had to be there day after day, and was able to discover many realities of life in the mines over time. Carter's work was exhausting and dangerous. As a single person pulling almost a ton of ore in those low, narrow tunnels, you had to keep a death grip on the cart handles. The impact of any little jolt, any wobble, could be infinitely amplified. 
Many carters got their fingers crushed this way. But that was the easy part. One of my clearest memories from those times is when we were clearing an abandoned mine shaft for our boss. One day, we were digging ore, when all of a sudden we broke through the mine's wall. Holding up a candle, we looked through the little hole we made. Inside, there was a plank bed with two young men lying on it, wearing work clothes and rubber boots. Their bodies had been left there for who knows how many years. Due to the lack of oxygen, though the corpses had become desiccated, they hadn't decomposed. Most likely they had died in some accident, so they were left in the tunnel, forever one with the mountain. This was the first time I'd come face to face with death in the mines, but at the time I couldn't afford to dwell on it. My family needed money, and I had to find a solution. Thus, I became a blaster's apprentice. There were many kinds of work in the mines, including carters, mechanics, ventilation workers, as well as the blasters, who were always on the front lines. The main job of the blaster was to jackhammer holes into the rock face suited to the structure of the rock. Then, based on the desired strength and velocity of the blast, they would select the appropriate powder formula and blow the rock apart. This was the highest-paying job on the mountain. The wages were two or three times that of the cart workers. In 2000, after a year of apprenticeship, I officially became a blaster. From then on, I started traveling across the country, going wherever there was work. In this way, I got to see the conditions in many different mines. Many of the mine operations were enormous, like underground fortifications. Riddled with myriad branches and forks, they could extend 2,000 meters into the earth and accommodate up to 4,000 workers at a time. Other mines had tunnels that were highly extensive. You could dig 30,000 meters horizontally without piercing through the other side of the mountain. Deep in the tunnels, under the pressure of thick rock strata, the structure and composition of these mines became even more complex. Flooding, cave-ins, and leaks of noxious gases became more common as well. The oppressive atmosphere, the stifling heat, and the darkness also numbed our senses. Risks that would normally have been within our control became dangerous in such environs. Thinking back to those nameless corpses I came across during my first year in the mines, I realized death wasn't a matter of chance, but rather a daily part of the life in the mines. A seam of ore wasn't simply a blessing from the heavens, it was also a curse. And my ride-and-die workmates from the mines? Some were blasted into a bloody pulp, and others were sliced in half by detonation pressure. De Cheng I'd seldom met anyone with lips as thick as De Cheng's. He was especially fond of smoking. A thin cigarette pressed between the two slabs of his lips. It was quite the funny sight. Do Chang was from my hometown and had also worked many years as a blaster. My town had more than 200 blasters, but everyone had their own routes, so it was rare that we encountered one another in our work. Therefore, Do Chang and I treasured each other's company, meeting each other in as far-flung a place as Xinjiang felt like a mark of fate. Even though I didn't smoke, he would still light up two cigarettes at a time and give me one. We were split up into two crews, blasting toward each other from opposite directions with the aim of boring through the mountain. As long as we followed the vein of ore, we would meet in the middle. Back then, there was no way of knowing exactly where we would link up. De Cheng and I were on the same team. That day, I needed to get in touch with my family about something, so I spent half the day searching for a phone signal instead of going to work. De Cheng went down alone. I was still on the surface looking for a signal when I heard some muffled sounds from underground, 
followed by a sharp blast. Something was wrong. In all my years of blast work, it was only when there was open space that a blast could sound so sharp. Perhaps the two tunnels had linked up, but then why did the explosions follow in such quick successions? I rushed down into the tunnels with my workmates, but De Cheng was already dead. De Cheng had died on the job. He was on one side of the mountain, with a tunnel halfway finished. The team on the other side didn't suspect a thing and set their charges. An immense force blasted through the wall in front of him, dashing his upper body into a cloud of bloody mist. Everyone fumbled to put what remained of his body together, bundled him into a cart, and brought him up the shaft into the elevator cage. I held heavy, complicated feelings. The merest breath of air would set my heart trembling. When we were almost at the surface, rays of golden light bounced down the shaft and into the cage. The moment we rose out of the shaft mouth, I saw a red sun like an enormous wheel of the western horizon. I had never seen a setting sun so big. The sunset in Xinjiang is quite unusual. The sky goes dark as soon as the sun disappears below the horizon. Not like my hometown, where the sun takes its time setting and the sky darkens gradually with it. That day, the sun seemed to hover over the distant horizon, and in my heart, I willed it to stay. But in the end, it still set. Wudu, a person's attitude towards death, can change. When you are several thousand meters underground, your only companions are darkness and a few workmates. That kind of life is like a walk through the night. On a night walk, you sing loudly. If you can no longer hear my voice, then either I have walked too far off, or I am no longer with you. In that helpless atmosphere, if you die, you die. There really is nothing you can do about it. But you go to different places and among different work teams and meet different people. Each person has their own burden to bear. With the passage of time and family transitions, like children growing up, parents dying and aging, I also came to bear a heavy burden. At this point, you come to fear death. If any workmate had even the tiniest accident, it would unsettle me greatly. Involuntarily, my mind would start running through the whole of that person's past and future. Wu De was in Karame, Xinjiang, with me as a foreman on a mining crew. I think he was from Bajong in Sichuan province. He was short and thin, but had real character, and was as reliable and hardworking as they come. When we wrapped up our blasting shift, Wudo would go off on his own with a sledgehammer and continue smashing rocks for a while. When there was a rock he absolutely couldn't split, he would have us drill holes and blast it into pieces the next day. He was able to cut costs that way and wring a bit more pay out of his hard work. He was also stingy when he trimmed fuses, always trimming off a few extra centimeters to save money. Once, we finished drilling fuse holes and left to go up to the surface, leaving him alone to prepare the blast. But before he resurfaced, we heard a muffled boom and the ground shook. I knew then that something had happened to him, but I hoped in my heart that it was a fluke, that maybe he had managed to dodge the explosion. The mine shaft was billowing clouds of thick smoke, looking like a giant chimney. We braved the smoke and went down into the shaft, only to see that he had already been sliced in two by the explosion. Only later did I understand. That day, in order to save money, he had trimmed all the fuses to just 30 centimeters. But there were over 60 fuses to light. Perhaps he had too much faith in his abilities, 
or a slip of his judgment. Either way, before he could finish lighting all the fuses, the first ones had gone off. He didn't even have time to turn away from the blast. I thought, even if nothing bad had happened this time, something was bound to happen the next time. Every person seemed to have their own fate. He died down there, out of a desire to earn some petty cash. Wudo had a photo on the wall of his room. It was a photo of him with his sister, taken in a yellow-green autumn, the two of them standing on a mountain with golden rice patties stretched out behind them. After he left, I brought this photo to the cellar where I slept. It was dry down there, so the photo could be preserved longer. I thought, as his body was already in pieces, there was no way of returning his bones to his ancestral home. As long as this cellar remained there, then the photo would also remain, and he could have a place to rest in peace. Deadly fumes. The sun will set, photos will fade, and blood will grow cold. In the face of these three absolutes of fate, I took the sorrow I had no way of expressing and alchemized it into poetry. In the Karame mines, everyone made their beds over empty powder kegs to sleep. I would sit hunched over a keg writing poetry. By the time I left and went to roll up my bedding, I found the underside of it chock full of poems. I wrote twenty or thirty poems at the mines, many of them to do with the deaths of my workmates. Heads split open by rockfall, hearts pierced through by metal rods, bodies blasted to pieces. My workmates departed one by one in these wretched fashions. But even if the mines were willing to spare the workers, capital was not. I once went to work in Yuncheng, Shanxi province. There was an old mine pit on the mountain top, brimming with green water. Three pumps churned for a full day and night trying to drain it, but there was no appreciable effect on the water level. The boss ordered me to blast through the bottom of the pit to discharge the water, but there was a village down the mountain, at the mouth of a ravine. The water that would come rushing down the slopes would cause them incalculable harm. So I held back a handful of explosives when packing the charge, blasting a hole no bigger than a mouth of a bowl. For that, I was fired not long after. I didn't see a cent of my pay. Yet capital could become still more frenzied in its quest for ore. For example, it was common for two mining operations to tunnel into each other's territory. To stake your claim, you had to be the first to get there. In 2010, my crew blasted a tunnel into another outfit's area. My boss called in the machete squad, hired goons, each shouldering a gleaming machete to guard the tunnel. But the other party had the upper hand. They bought 500 kilos of dried chilies and 50 kilos of sulfur, mixed the two together, set them ablaze, and directed bellows toward the tunnel entrance. We could only flee because even in a tunnel several thousand meters deep, the deadly fumes traveled everywhere. They could make you cough nonstop and quickly lose consciousness. But most dangerous of all was if the boss pressured you to go down the shaft and add your explosives to the already thin and foul air. This would very likely cause carbon monoxide poisoning. If this happened, we would load up the carts and pull the victims out, then strip off their clothes and set them on the rock detritus. Then we'd grab two buckets of cold water from the kitchen, the colder the better, and pour over their heads and help them come to their senses. Many people were revived with this method, but there were some who never woke up. This is why some of the mine sites could smoke you to death. Once the profits are high enough, capitalists can kill with impunity, 
Every step in humanity's progress is paid for in struggle. There is nothing extraordinary about this. Peach Blossoms Toil gives us strength in life and relief in death. Miners who were fortunate enough to survive the work could only become more and more reliant on their trade, thanks to the fatigue, injury, and illness that were the invisible costs of the years throwing themselves into the mines. I also considered changing my line of work, but with my right ear gone deaf, my neck herniated, and no marketable skills besides blasting, I no longer had a choice. I once trained an apprentice of my own who had failed the college entrance exams by just a few points. His family couldn't afford to pay for him to repeat a year of secondary school and try again, so he came to the mines, hoping to make some money to fund his studies for the next year. Instead, he became a blaster and never left the mines again. The mine is like a beast that can never be sated, gorging itself on hopeful newcomers, snatching away their hopes of ever being anything else. And outside of the mines, the workers still had their ailments to treat and families to raise. For them, life's shoulder pull would never get any lighter. This was a vicious cycle. The greater the poverty, the harder we had to work. And the harder we worked, the greater the harm and the costs to us. We all understood that the mines were like a microcosm of society, a snapshot of the era we lived in. They taught us our place in society. I turned 43 in 2013. I went to the mines as soon as I finished celebrating the Lunar New Year and worked there for three months, until the peach blossoms were in full bloom on the mountains. Some of the peach trees grew right in front of our mine entrance. Every time there was a blast, the whole mountain shook, and peach blossoms would rain down into the mines and the alleys, or drifting into our shacks with the breeze. One day, I emerged from the mine shaft at the close of my shift, when the sun was already about to set. The early spring breeze felt pleasant against my clothing. As soon as my phone picked up a signal, it began to ring. This didn't feel like a good omen. It was my younger brother. He said my mother had cancer of the esophagus, in the late stage. This was a severe blow to me. Death wasn't a novelty in the mines. I'd already made mental preparation for my own demise, but never for family members. I sat by the mine opening and watched the peach blossoms fall in drifts in the evening breeze. Our courtyard back home also has a peach tree that my mother had planted. Now the flowers would be in bloom, but the person who'd planted them was about to depart. There was an unspeakable grief in my heart. Life was ephemeral, and you didn't have the least power to resist it. It felt like all of my dreams were melting into illusions. That night, I tossed and turned, unable to sleep. I got up and wrote a poem, Blaster's Dream. I wake to a headache, splitting me like a blast. This is the gratuitous gift of heavy machinery. It is no fault of the steel, but only my aging nerves, brittle and frail. I dare not look into my life. It is unyielding, hook black, bearing the air pick's acute angles, brush against the rock, and it bleeds. I dispatched my best years into 5,000 meter depths. Over and over, I split the strata at their seams, remaking my life in the process. My far-flung loved ones, at the foot of distant mountains, they are sick, their bodies vessels for powder. I cannot know how much my prime years have been cleaved. I cannot know how long their twilight years will stretch. 
My body holds three tons of explosives, and they are detonators. In the night, in front of their beds, the blast spills me across the ground like rubble. I can never stop, can never change my way of living. I do not have the capital to make such a choice. But how fragile was this existence? A string tuned too tight will always break, and that day will certainly come for me. Here and now. Two years ago, in order to pay for my mother's treatment, I bit back my own pain in order to keep working. Whenever I went to the mines, I carried a big bag of medicine over my shoulder. My health got worse until 2015, when even standing became difficult. The doctor told me if I didn't have surgery, I might become paralyzed within a few months. On April 8, 2015, I chose to go through with an operation. This meant that I would never be able to return to work in the mines. But the mines have left me with more than just a herniated cervical disc. There is also the powder in my lungs. In 2016, I started to cough, with each coughing fit trailing off in a harsh metallic sound. This is the rasping you hear as I've been speaking to you. In 2020, I was diagnosed black lung. This disease has a 5-20 to 20 year latency. From the winter of 1999, when I first went up into the mines, till early spring in 2020, it had been precisely 20 years. This heralded the end of many of my dreams. In my time as a blaster, I've seen much scenery all over the country. But it was all for work. I always hoped that someday, when I had the chance, I might be able to take my time visiting these sites again. But with my injuries and illness, I will never have that chance. To live is to shout to the sky. But still, I will continue writing. It is my only way forward from here on out. I once wrote this poem called Qinqiang, Shanxi Opera. Grief and joy song, love and hate song, evening faint song, sycophants teary dawn, believing faith song, martyrs in time flow, Qinqiang's deluge crashes down like anointment, leaving you drenched and speechless, leaving you conscious. For rights and reason are the peoples alone, leaving you aware. To live is to shout to the sky. Later, this last line became the title for my prose collection. Because I will always remember how I, with my workmates, have let out just this kind of broken wail on the mountain slopes. It was in 2006, when I was working in the Karakoram Range in Xinjiang. Those mountains were sharp and barren, devoid of life. We watched the snow line rise and ebb over several months, but we still hadn't seen a cent of our pay. We were feeling low. Then one evening, out of the blue, an old man refused to eat his dinner. Instead, he sat down at the worksite and began softly singing a dirge. The people around him heard, the mahjong players even ceasing their shuffling, and began to sing along. Because the slopes were so steep, there was no way of pitching tents. We simply lived in the mine tunnels. For a moment, they reverberated with the majestic sound of our combined voices. The boss thought it was unlucky and tried to stop us from singing, but to no avail. After that, whenever anyone started singing, the rest of us would join in. We sang as we ate, walked, and worked. We sang for the whole half-year that I worked there. When I left, 
they were still singing. Family Values Written by Ai Weiwei Published in The Wire, China Read for you by Kaiser Guo Editor's Note Ai Weiwei, 64, is an artist and activist. His sculptures and installations have been viewed by millions around the globe, and his architectural achievements include helping to design the iconic Bird's Nest Olympic Stadium in Beijing. His political activism, however, has long made him a target of Chinese authorities, and in 2011, he was detained for inciting the subversion of state power. He was held captive for 81 days and fined $2.4 million. After his passport was returned to him in 2015, he moved to Europe, where he has been living in exile since. What follows is an excerpt from his newly published memoir, One Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows. On April 3, 2011, as I was about to fly out of Beijing's capital airport, a swarm of plainclothes police descended on me, and for the next 81 days, I disappeared into a black hole. My son had just turned two years old, and during my confinement, I began to reflect on my own father, Ai Qing, who had himself spent three years and two months behind bars. I realized I knew very little about his ordeal. The broad strokes, of course, were known to me. In 1932, he had been arrested by the nationalist government for Communist Party activities, although he was not yet a member of the party, that were seen as damaging the republic, a vague charge much like the political crime of inciting the subversion of state power of which I would be accused in the following century. During his time in a Shanghai prison, as men around him were facing death and he himself overcame a grave bout of tuberculosis, he wrote more than twenty poems, and when he was released, he started to gain notoriety as a poet. Poetry today ought to be a bold experiment in the democratic spirit, and the future of poetry is inseparable from the future of democratic politics, he declared in the following year as China's war of resistance against Japan heated up. A constitution matters even more to poets than to others because only when the right to expression is guaranteed can one give voice to the hopes of people at large, and only then is progress possible. To suppress the voices of the people is the cruelest form of violence. My father eventually did join the Communist Party, and he lived a relatively comfortable life following the establishment of the new regime in 1949. But all that came to an abrupt end first with the anti-rightist campaign in 1958, when my father was exiled to the Great Northern Wilderness for thought-remolding, and then, more severely, in 1967, when, under the Cultural Revolution, my father was forced to undergo reform through labor as part of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. I was about to turn ten when we moved into a dugout alongside rats, and he began his work cleaning the latrines above a cesspit. The five years we spent in Little Siberia have stayed with me always, but it was half a century before I could take an active interest in and reflect on my father's experiences, both before and after the Cultural Revolution. Although he and I were not emotionally close, 
Our connection has undoubtedly played a role in determining the road I have taken and the position in which I find myself, an artist living in exile. I have experienced some of the personal struggles and larger political difficulties that he encountered, and like him, I have been labeled an enemy of the state. During my own period of enforced isolation, I felt a need to think through my relationship with my father, and I resolved to write an account of his life and mine, and to share it with my son, Ilal. When I was growing up, my father rarely talked about the past, but I have found guidance in his writings. There, he recorded feelings that had lodged deep in his heart, even if those little streams of honesty and candor had no natural outlet on those many occasions when political floods carried all before them. Today, with my father's faith in poetry as freedom's ambassador, yet to find vindication in China, all I can do is pick up the scattered fragments left after the storm and try to piece together a picture, however incomplete it may be. A New Epoch My father dreamed of being able to fully devote himself to writing, and on the morning of September 25, 1940, Zhou Enlai offered him just that. At the time, Zhou was the chief officer of the Chinese Communist Party's administrative arm, and he was eager to see my father join the communist cause. Mao Zedong had issued a call to absorb intellectuals on a large scale. The policy of winning support from intellectuals is a major precondition for the revolution's victory, he stated, and the pen must unite with the gun. Joe visited the school where my father, now a well-known poet, was a teacher. If friends such as Mr. Ai Ching go to Yan'an, he said, referring to the growing numbers of left-wing intellectuals moving to the communist stronghold, they will be able to write without distraction, with no need to worry about basic necessities. At the time, as people increasingly questioned the legitimacy of the Guomindang regime, the image of the Communist Party was shifting from agent of disorder to upholder of national interests. Yan'an was touted as a paradise of equality, freedom, and democracy. Basic needs were met by a military supply system based on egalitarianism, and the communists, rejecting the Confucian ethical code and traditional elite values, were promoting gender equality and popular culture. My father agreed to the invitation, and Zhou Enlai furnished him with a thousand yuan in travel expenses. After a month-long journey, he arrived in the treeless terrain of northern Shanxi and was assigned to one of the many caves carved into the hillsides which provided insulation from the rugged climate. Unless there was some special need, Father seldom left his cave. In 1941, a relatively relaxed atmosphere still prevailed in Yan'an's cultural circles, and although the supply of material goods was meager, intellectuals, particularly those of Ai Ching's status, were accorded certain privileges. Father was issued an eighth-root army uniform and a cotton-padded jacket for use in the winter, and every month he received a small stipend. Food, medicine, and boiled water were free. Couriers would bring him mail and collect his letters, and meals were brought to his cave by a soldier from the central kitchen. But in July 1941, Zhou Yang, 
the dean of the Lucien Academy of Arts, published an essay entitled Informal Remarks on Literature and Life, in which he complained that a number of authors in Yan'an were proving incapable of writing anything much. This provoked Ai Qing and four other writers to jointly sign a letter rejecting this accusation, intensifying the latent rift between party ideologues like Zhou Yang and more liberal intellectuals. A few days later, at dusk on August 11, 1941, Mao Zedong, not yet party chairman but already the dominant political figure in the CCP leadership, paid a visit to the authors of the protest letter. As he made his way down the slope toward Father's Cave, he signaled to his bodyguard to go no farther, then continued alone to greet Father. At this, his first encounter with Mao, Ai Qing found him to be thoughtful, composed, and widely read, quoting with ease from a variety of sources. Afterward, Mao invited him and his neighbors to go down the mountain and have dinner at his quarters, a meal that included bacon, salted fish, and eggs. Mao listened attentively and took notes, laughing and cracking the occasional joke. But the unpleasantness stirred up by Zhou Yang's informal remarks had begun to puncture some of Ai Qing's illusions about Yan'an. Until that point, he had not fully understood how the CCP operated. The May 4th spirit embraced democracy, freedom, independence, and equality, but these values were bound to be at odds with the ideological unity, centralized leadership, and collectivism demanded by the Communist Party. In December 1941, Ai Qing channeled his ambivalence into a poem entitled simply, Epoch. I stand beneath low-hanging eaves, gazing in awe at the bare mountains and the endless sky. In the end, I feel a miracle is happening. I see something glittering with light. Like the sun, it lifts my heart. Pounding wildly, my heart keeps chasing it, like a bridegroom hastening to a wedding. Though I know what it brings is not festive good cheer, nor the merriment of a vaudeville show, but a sight more cruel than a thousand abattoirs, still I rush toward it with all the eagerness a life can muster. Epoch is the most striking work that he wrote during the Yan'an period. The poem affirms a new epoch promised by the fledgling communist state, but it is darkened by a grim undertow. No one could suffer more than me. I am loyal to the epoch and commit my life to it, but I am silent, against my will, like a captive, wordless on my way to execution. He could already sense that loyalty to his epoch, service to the emerging power, in other words, would exact a fateful cost, but it seemed that there was no alternative. I love it more than anything else I have loved. For its arrival, I am willing to hand over my life, relinquishing everything from body to soul. Before it, I appear so insignificant I am willing to lie face up on the ground and let its feet, like a horse's hooves, stamp upon my chest. The poem captures with uncanny prescience the intersection 
of dramatic change and personal calamity that would accompany the revolution sweeping across China in the 1940s. But Father could not foresee just how quickly members of the Yan'an cultural community would themselves be trapped in treacherous political currents. A Cultural Army In March 1942, Ding Ling, Yan'an's most prominent female author, published an essay entitled Thoughts on March 8th, Women's Day, that drew attention to the inequities and the silent oppression facing women in this supposedly progressive community. Ai Qing had been concerned for some time about the criticism to which authors were subjected. When Ding Ling invited him to share his views, he promptly obliged, writing a pithy essay called Understand Writers, Respect Writers, in which he staunchly defended the right of authors to express themselves as they saw fit, noting tartly, A writer is not a skylark, nor is she a sing-song girl whose job is to warble tunes to entertain her patron. For father, freedom of expression was the precondition for any meaningful literary work. Apart from the freedom to write, he continued, authors demand no other privilege, only when artistic creation is endowed with a free and independent spirit can it give impetus to the mission of social reform. Other authors, still more outspoken, targeted the increasing trends toward bureaucratic complacency, factionalism, and a cult of personality. On March 17, 1942, Wang Shuwei completed an essay entitled Wild Lilies, exposing the dark shadows in Yan'an society, the disillusionment of the intellectuals, their concerns about the hierarchical system and the privileges that the top leaders enjoyed. His reference to some rather healthy big shots who receive unnecessary and unreasonable perks struck a nerve. After Mao read Wang's essay in Jiefang Rival, Liberation Daily, he banged his hand on his desk and asked acerbically, Who's in charge here, Karl Marx or Wang Shiwei? He demanded that the editors admit their fault in allowing such a work to be published and pledged to avoid any such error in the future. As Mao saw it, criticism of the party was no less damaging to the cause than a military defeat and would serve to weaken morale and even compromise the party's legitimacy. In early April 1942, an orderly delivered a letter to Father from Mao. There's something I want to talk to you about. Please come over if you're free. When they met, Mao began with a stab at humor. I like to play the patriarch. Then he went on. There are a lot of problems now in Yan'an literary art circles. People are not happy with a lot of the essays that have been published. Some look as though they could have been dropped from Japanese planes and others belong in a nationalist newspaper. Mao asked Ai Qing's opinion about what should be done. My father had not given much thought to this and suggested off the top of his head, how about we hold a meeting and you come out and give a talk? If I talk, will people listen? I will at least, he answered. Two days later, he got another letter from Mao. Regarding the cultural policy issues that we talked about, please collect for me all the critical commentaries and share with me any insights you have. For emphasis, he had drawn three circles under the word critical. Ai Qing did not understand what he meant by 
critical commentaries, so he did not try to collect them. Instead, he wrote down his own views and sent them to Mao. In his essay, Writing from an Author's Perspective, he examined the relationship between the creative arts and politics and considered the question of what to write and how to write. The struggle to improve people's lives, I Ching argued, literature and art share the same goals as politics, but literature and art are not an appendage to politics. They are not a gramophone or a loudspeaker for politics. Literature and art's integration with politics finds expression in their truthfulness. The more truthful the works, the closer their alignment with the progressive political direction of their era. A few days later, Mao wrote back in response, Thank you for your letter and your essay. I am keen to discuss them with you. The river is high, so I'll send a horse to pick you up. In April, Mao's living quarters were still chilly, and the party leader wore an old padded jacket, its sleeves so worn that the strands of padding were exposed. We read your piece, Mao told him, and we'd like to share our reactions. Ai Ching's essay had been reviewed by Mao's colleagues in the leadership, and Mao himself had comments written down on several sheets of paper. The floor was uneven, and the wooden table a bit wobbly, so Mao went outside and came back with a piece of tile to slip under one of the table legs. Then he expounded his views, which were not entirely in line with my father's. On May 2nd, the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art began. During the preceding days, Zhou Yang had drawn up a list of participants, and Mao had sent out an invitation to more than a hundred writers and artists. After lunch, on the appointed day, people gathered in the large conference room of the party headquarters in Yangjialing. Twenty-odd stools had been placed around a long table on which a white tablecloth had been laid, with two other rows of stools next to the north wall. A wooden armchair rather than the stool occupied a central position by the table, clearly designed for the presiding officer. Mao arrived promptly at one thirty and walked around the room, shaking hands with everyone. It seems there aren't many chairs, Mao remarked as he opened the proceedings. There just aren't enough of them. In the future, we need to provide a few more armchairs. In saying this, he was referring obliquely to the comments that had been made about power and privilege in Yan'an. It was not a comment on the need for seats, so much as a sardonic dismissal of some people's complaints about unfairness. To defeat the enemy, Mao went on, we must rely primarily on the army with guns. But this army alone is not enough. We must also have a cultural army. The first of these armies is led by Commander-in-Chief Zhu, the second by Commander-in-Chief Lu. By Zhu, he meant Zhu De, head of the Communist Armed Forces, and by Lu, he meant Lu Xun, who had died in Shanghai some years earlier, but remained a symbol of left-wing activism. The audience laughed appreciatively. Many of them had not realized until now how much importance Mao attached to the role of literature and art. Until the forum, intellectuals had commonly assumed that culture and revolution advanced in parallel and had equal status. The goal of this meeting was to make patently clear 
that literature and art had to serve the party, just as soldiers had to obey the orders of their superiors. Following the first plenary session on May 2nd, further sessions were held on May 16th and 23rd when Mao made his closing remarks. No real consensus emerged among the speakers. Writers presented their opinions and argued their cases. Father and Dingling both spoke up at various junctures. For much of the time, Mao sat there expressionless and did not intervene even when radical views were expressed. On the last day of the forum, all 109 attendees posed outside the conference room for a group portrait. Just as the photographer was about to close the shutter, a dog ran into the shot. Mao stood up to shoot away, shouting, Kang Sheng, get your dog under control! Everybody laughed. In Yan'an, Kang Sheng was in charge of counter-espionage and the capture of running dogs. Years later, as a small boy, I studied the wide-format black-and-white photograph taken that day. Mao sits in the middle front row, Ding Ling, four seats to his left. Father stands up on the far right next to Zhou Yang. Like a painting of the Last Supper, the photograph struck a note of poignancy and mystery, and it felt very remote and foreign to me. After dinner, a hanging lamp was rigged in the courtyard and everyone moved outside to hear Mao's closing speech. Ayah, this is not easy to do, Mao could be heard muttering as he looked over his notes. But once he began to deliver his speech, his heavy Hunanese accent held everyone's attention. The problem of whom to serve, Mao said, is fundamental. It is a question of principle. All our literature and art are for the masses, and in the first place, for the workers, peasants, and soldiers. The masses was one of his favorite concepts, and what he really meant when he used that term was the rank-and-file population, subject to the will and direction of the party. Mao's speech at the Yan'an Forum on Literature and Art ended up shaping Chinese intellectuals' understanding of their mission. He devoted particular attention to issues of a writer's target audience and the attitude they should bring to their work, explicitly demanding that they cater to the needs of workers, peasants, and soldiers, rather than elite readers. The May 4th movement had seen intellectuals as the core of society. They were to shoulder the responsibility for enlightenment and social critique. Mao, on the other hand, believed that intellectuals, rather than seeking to make people more like them, should make themselves more like the people. They should abandon social critique and devote more time to self-criticism. The forum had a far more wide-ranging significance than many of the participants had expected, generating a programmatic document that would dictate the fate of Chinese culture for decades to come. With it, the function of intellectuals was fundamentally altered, and novelists, poets, and artists were now all lumped together under the omnibus label, literature and art workers. From then on, Ai Ching and his fellow writers found that alternative pathways were closed to them. An opportunity to exercise their free will might possibly appear after the war with Japan was won, or perhaps it would remain forever out of their reach. For now, 
all arguments had been replaced, suppressed, by the party's voice and the party line, and their aspirations were reduced to an empty farce. Given the constant threat of political interference, only through opportunism could they win a little living space, and stale mediocrity would be the only outcome. The Chinese Communist Party and left-wing intellectuals were like two celestial bodies in the solar system. As they orbited, they might, at certain moments, travel in parallel, but each moved on its own plane, and they inevitably went their separate ways. The Thick Fog In the years that followed, intellectuals would face increasing pressure to conform, leading ultimately to the anti-rightist campaign in 1957, which marked the end of intellectuals as a force in society. From that time on, Chinese intellectuals were confined to a marginal position and have been there ever since. When I was little and not yet able to read the words, I enjoyed looking at Father's shelves, which were packed with both literary works and art books. Some of these volumes had eye-catching covers and illustrations, gilded virgins, prints of Rembrandt's bronze etchings, buildings and statues from the classical and renaissance periods. They all gave wing to my imagination. I remember two poetry collections by Whitman, Baudelaire, Mayakovsky, Lorca, and the Turkish poet Nazim Hikmet. I was fascinated by the Picasso engravings in a volume of Paul Eluard's poetry and early Chinese revolutionary woodblock prints and traditional window paper cuts that father had acquired in Yan'an. When you turned the pages of the books, they would give off a unique aroma, telling you right away that they were from a different time and place. From an early age, my family and I knew that these books and albums meant the world to father, for every time he talked about them, his face would light up. They helped him forget his worries. But in 1966, as the red terror of the Cultural Revolution began, every little fiber of their linen covers posed a danger to us. During this time, when politics invaded all aspects of life, the Chinese people suffered a withering of spiritual life and lost the ability to tell things as they had truly occurred. Everything was shrouded in the thick fog of the dominant political narrative, and any inquiry into fact ran the risk of provoking a backlash too awful to contemplate. After several home invasions by the Red Guards, Father decided to burn all his books, and I was his helper. We stacked the books up next to a bonfire, and one by one I tore out the pages and tossed them into the fire. Like drowning ghosts, they writhed in the heat and were swallowed by flames. At the moment they turned to ash, a strange force took hold of me. From then on, that force would gradually extend its command of my body and mind until it matured into a form that even the strongest enemy would find intimidating. It was a commitment to reason, to a sense of beauty, these things are unbending, uncompromising, and any effort to suppress them is bound to provoke resistance. 
Translation by Alan H. Barr. From the book One Thousand Years of Joys and Sorrows by Ai Weiwei. Copyright 2021 by Ai Weiwei. Published by Crown, an imprint of Random House, a division of Penguin Random House LLC. All rights reserved.